Good morning, welcome. My name's Aaron. If we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, hopefully we can, c- can connect after the gathering. Um, but before we get started in our teaching this morning, if you are a young kid and want to hang out with some more kids, Miss Trish is out here in the back. We'd love to hang out with you back there. Continuing in our series, we've been calling it for us this morning, if you're here with me, uh, we're going to be continuing in our series, we've been calling it Unforced Rhythms of Grace, looking at what does it look like to adopt and practice the rhythms and habits of Jesus as we are his apprentices, or as we are his disciples, what does it look, to, look like to take on the ye- easy yoke of discipleship to Jesus? Ma- or Jesus says this in the Gospel of Matthew Chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase is, I think, helpful with this. Eugene Peterson writes of this passage, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. And here's where we get our series title from. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. Unforced rhythms of grace, like we talked about in the previous weeks, our goal here is not to try to open, muster up more strength, to kind of just perform better, but rather to surrender, to open ourselves up to what God has for us, to say yes to God's invitation, trusting that as we open ourselves up to God, God by his grace and by his spirit does a transforming work in each of our lives. And so this morning, kind of the habit, the rhythm, the practice we're going to look at today is that of scripture reading. Scripture reading, reading, reading our Bibles. And for me, this is probably one of my favorite things to talk about. And it was really hard for me to kind of write this teaching simply because there's so much that can be said and should be said about the scriptures. And to kind of condense that into 30, 40 minutes was quite the challenge. But for us this morning, maybe a good place to start is by simply asking the question... And going back to the beginning, how does the Bible itself begin? Like, what's the first sentence of the scriptures? In the beginning, God, right? So to start off, the Bible, we can say, is first and foremost about who? God, right? It's not about you or about me, though there's implications for you and I for sure. But in the beginning, God. But the thing is, in our cultural moment, there are so many different ideas about who God is right? And what God is like. Like, what is, or who is God? What is God up to in the world? And it matters a ton. So many different ideas about God. And how you think about God matters a ton. You know, the celebrity preacher that has sneakers that are worth more than rent and PG has a view about God, right? You know, the star athlete that later today points up to the sky after he scores a touchdown has a view about God. And the person that gives up all their possessions and lives in poverty intentionally to serve those who are not as fortunate as they are has a view about God. See, your view of God matters a ton. A.W. Tozer famously said in his little book, The Pursuit of God, the first thing that comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing 
about us. Now, when, we, when I talk about thinking about God, it's not just thinking cognitively, like can you answer a theology kind of checklist. In the Bible, thinking is part of this tripart of thinking, feeling, and desire. How we feel about God matters. How we experience God matters. And if Tozer is right, and I think he is, how we think and feel and experience God for sure matters for us as followers of Jesus. But the problem is, again, in our cultural moment, there's so many different ideas about who God is and what God is like. And for even us in the church, there can be sometimes confusion. What is God like? Eugene Peterson puts it this way. I love what he says. God and his ways are not what most of us think. Most papers or God and his ways by our friends on the street or what we read about him in the papers or view on television or think up on our own time is simply wrong. Not dead wrong, but maybe wrong enough to mess up the way we live. And this book, the scriptures, is precisely a revelation, a revealing of what we could never figure out on our own. So if the scriptures then are the primary way where we are revealed to what God is like, well, the honest kind of comment then is that we have a problem a little bit. Because in our cultural moment, the scriptures, there's a huge problem with the scriptures in our culture, both inside and outside the church. On one hand, the scriptures, the Bible, is the best-selling book ever. But year after year, the scriptures, the Bible, are read less and less each year. And that's understandable to a certain degree, right? Like the Bible's hard to read in a lot of ways. You know, like it's not like Harry Potter or The Hunger Games, some, you know, teen fiction novel that's nothing wrong with those. That's just super easy read or whatever. I mean, there's a talking snake on page three of the Bible, right? Like where did that come from? Or if you ever tried like one of those one-year Bible reading plans, you get a few months into it and what book do you find yourself in? Leviticus, right? And then by then it's like game over, Right? And so when it's the choice between, like, Netflix or This Is Us, which one wins when it comes to our family, and Leviticus, well, it's kind of easy to figure out which one wins when it comes to your attention and your time. But all that to say, it's not just inside the church, but outside the, the church. The scriptures, there's huge problems with the scriptures. People say the scriptures are outdated, or they're irrelevant, or the moral ethic of the scriptures kind of goes against what we believe is true and right for us in our age. There's so many different problems people might have with the scriptures, and even for us as Christians, we can't even agree on how to interpret so many passages within the scriptures. There's so many debates on this theological topic, or this passage, whatever the case might be. And never mind kind of all of the horrible things that have been done by Christians in the name of, quote, the Bible says. You know, I think of slavery from a little over a century and a half ago, even in our own country. You know, I think of even people my own age who kind of read through the scriptures and have so much kind of problem with sort of the moral, ethical guidelines and teachings of scriptures, even, for example, the book of Joshua. You know, I grew up in the church, loved my parents, loved the, the church family I was raised in. But people in my parents' generation can read stories in the book of Joshua. Like Joshua going into the promised land, going into Canaan, battling Jericho with his people. City six times, sounding the trumpets, and read that story and go, God is with his people. God is for his people. God is fighting with his people. And God's going to do that in my life. People in my generation, I talked to a good friend just the other day, can read that exact same story and go, that's genocide. 
Like, how does that square with the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5 and the call to love our enemies? Right? The point being, now that I've kind of unsettled you a little bit, is just to point out that there's so many roadblocks to reading the scriptures and so many roadblocks to just coming to the text and opening up our Bibles and reading it. Never mind, and don't forget the case that we live in such a busy culture, right? I was talking with some of my friends about what makes it hard to read the scriptures. Time and time again, one of the constant things was just the simple fact of busyness and time. And the reason I point all this out is not to kind of just say it just to say it, but to recognize wherever you are when it comes to the scriptures, wherever you are on your journey with Jesus, whether you love the Bible and are so passionate about it or maybe you want to be passionate about the Bible but it's just hard for you to kind of come to the text, wherever you are, I'm so glad you're here and I'm so excited to talk with us together about the scriptures this morning. But the one thing that I want to focus on today in this morning, why should you ask this question? Why? Why should you, we, us, be a community of people that read the scriptures? I mean, if the scriptures reveal who God is and what he's up to in the world, reveal to us who we are in relationship to God, why should we read the scriptures? Now think about that for a second. I mean, if if you really think about it, reading the scriptures and reading any sort of ancient text, that's a very strange thing to do. Right? And if you don't think it's strange, just go ask your coworkers tomorrow. And they'll tell you how strange it is, right? Like, do your coworkers read like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics as part of their daily morning routine to connect with the divine each day? Like, probably not, right? I'm assuming. But we, as followers of Jesus, most of us will read a text that was written thousands of years ago in a different language to a different culture as part of what it means to follow Jesus. So why then should we, as followers of Jesus, read the scriptures? Is it just because it's like the right thing to do? Is it because I'm more or less implying like, yeah, you should be doing that? What should be our motivation then for reading the scriptures? The why question. You know, maybe kind of a little personal story to kind of illustrate this a bit, and then we're going to get into Matthew 4. Growing up, like I mentioned, I grew up in the church. I never really read my parents, have a great relationship with my parents, but to be honest, I never really read the scriptures growing up. I knew the scriptures. I went to church, went to youth group. So I knew quite a bit of the Bible growing up, but never seriously engaged or read the scriptures. Not until, I'd say, probably going into my junior year of college. And going into my junior year of college, I remember... I had a really good friend who was trying to bug me, and he was trying to get me to come to our church's college group. And eventually, after enough times of him asking me to come to this college group, I eventually went. And we went on this little kind of hangout retreat thing one summer going into my junior year of college. And I don't remember like a ton about that trip other than we went camping out in the San Juan Islands up in Washington, if you've ever been there. And we went kayaking for like hours. And it was amazing. And you can see just the wildlife, just a beautiful place up in the San Juan Islands. And as part of this kind of retreat, this trip, you know, besides the kayaking, which was amazing, there was one Bible study in particular that just completely changed the trajectory of my life, kind of looking back on it now. And this study, it was just like a small group of us, maybe 10, 12 of us, were sitting together at night, and our pastor is talking about Psalm 119. 
And for those of you who are familiar, kind of know maybe some of the famous lines in Psalm 119, but one line where it says, just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's the, the, the line where it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I remember our pastor, he gets up and he has like one of those camping lanterns. And he begins to kind of walk around and recite that line. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And at that moment, you know, I had been asking so many questions on, you know, what was I going to do with my life? What I wanted to do? I had all these ambitions, all these dreams, and all kind of like a, from a self-motivated kind of perspective. Not really asking like what God wanted, but asking just like what I wanted. And in that moment, I just remember God speaking, going, your life is not going to be defined by what you want and what, you, what motivates you, but your life is going to be defined by God and his word and a deep connection to his word. That your instruction and that you will be led by and that you will come under the authority of the scriptures, God's word was going to be a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And from there, as kind of the weeks and the months progressed, I just devoured the scriptures. There was this thing inside of me that just changed, and all of a sudden I just wanted to keep reading the, the scriptures over and over and over again. And when I got to the Gospels and reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that especially stood out to me about motivated me, just reading about the person of Jesus. And so many things stood out to me about Jesus, how he treated people, his teachings, so much. But one thing in particular, as we're talking about scripture reading, that stood out to me about Jesus was Jesus' relationship to the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And just kind of picking up and noticing how many times Jesus himself either is quoting or alluding to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and seeing this man, Jesus, was obsessed with the scriptures. He knew the Hebrew Bible. He knew the Old Testament. He's constantly quoting and alluding to it. And as he began to study more, recognizing and realizing that so many of the parables and his teachings was Jesus kind of commenting or riffing off of things in the Old Testament. And it became kind of apparent to me that if I'm going to follow Jesus, I should adopt and have the same posture Jesus did with the scriptures. I mean, Jesus himself, one of the most common titles in the four gospels is that of rabbi. And that word rabbi simply means teacher. Teacher of what? Well, teacher of the Bible. Jesus was a Bible student and a Bible teacher. And it's more than likely, as many commentators agree, that Jesus had so much of the Old Testament probably put to memory, if not all of it. Genesis through Malachi. Again, Jesus, he was obviously in hindsight. And so he was not less than a student and teacher of God's word. And so for us as followers in Jesus, followers of Jesus and apprentices of Jesus, when someone asks me, why should I read the Bible? When they ask that why question, you know, my first response isn't to say, well, because you have to or because you should or even to say, because it's God's word, you should read it. And I 110% believe that the scriptures are God's word to us. Rather, my response, my knee-jerk response when someone asks, why should I read the scriptures, is because I am a follower of Jesus. And if I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to pattern and adopt the same postures and patterns that Jesus had in his life. And I want to have the same relationship to the scriptures that Jesus did as his follower, as his apprentice. 
So for the rest of our time today, what I want to do is I want to take us to Matthew chapter 4 and look at the first 10 verses of Matthew 4 to look at how does Jesus view and use and read the scriptures. You know, Matthew 4 is a fairly famous passage. It's the story of when Jesus is tempted out in the wilderness, and there's so much we could say about this passage. We could talk about how Jesus in Matthew 4 is replaying the story of Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. We could talk about how Jesus is replaying Israel's story, where Israel perils in the Jesus succeeds. We could obviously talk about temptation and the perils in the, 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 the landmines with temptation. But for today, what I want to talk about is how Jesus viewed and looked at the scriptures. So Matthew 4, I invite you to open there if you have a Bible. If not, it'll be up on the screen. But starting in, in verse 1 of Matthew 4, it says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus only said Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, one thing to just point out, big picture. Each time the tempter comes to Jesus, Jesus responds with three words. What are they? It is written. It is written. It is written. See, Jesus, it it seems, right, has this very high view and trust of the scriptures, In each instance, again, he writes, he says, it is written. Andrew Wilson, he's a pastor, scholar, teacher over in London. He writes this. I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good and helpful and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or some of my answers remain unpopular. What he's pointing out is just like Jesus in Matthew 4, Jesus has this high view of the scriptures. So we too as his followers, as his apprentices, are to have this high view and trust of the scriptures. In Andrew Wilson's book, They're Unbreakable, it's a great little read. He has great insights on this passage. And I kind of, for the rest of our time, just want to point out some of these things about how Jesus is using scripture and three things work here and expand for us. And I'll put these up on the screen. I'm kind of modifying a little bit of Wilson's work here and expanding on it. But the, the three things. Number one, Jesus was nourished by the scriptures. Jesus understood the scriptures. And number three, Jesus obeyed the scriptures. So we're going to go through each of those three things and kind of see how that plays with our life. But to start, number one, Jesus was nourished by the scriptures. You know, in that first interaction, the tempter comes to Jesus and says that line, if you are the son of God. 
But if you had been reading Matthew from left to right, starting in chapter 1, you would have read just a chapter ago in Matthew 3. The Father from heaven, the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism saying, This is my beloved Son. That Jesus' identity as the Son has already been declared in Matthew 3. Here the tempter in Matthew 4 comes back and kind of questions that. If you are the Son of God. Kind of putting a little bit of doubt into the words of God back in Matthew 3. It's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. Where the tempter comes to the woman and says, did God really say? Kind of questioning the word of God. But notice how Jesus responds. He says, it is written. Now, in each of these three instances in Matthew 4, Jesus is going to quote from one of your favorite books of the Bible, Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy was actually the most, just had way more resistance throughout the four Gospels except for the Psalms. And the Psalms are 150 chapters. He just had way more material to quote from there. But it appears that Jesus had this great love for the book of Deuteronomy. And he quotes, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from, or some translations have, proceeds from the mouth of God. Like what is Jesus saying here? Well, on one hand, Jesus is saying even good things like bread cannot ultimately satisfy. Even good things in life cannot ultimately kind of quench the thirst and hunger that only God and his word can provide. You know, Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy 3. He has this kind of famous iconic line of the scriptures where Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. Like it's God's very word. And God's very word, according to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, and the writers of Scripture, is nourishment for God's people. I think of this little poem from Psalm 1 that kind of highlights this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law or the teaching or instruction of the Lord. And on God's law or teaching or instruction, he meditates on it day and night. And here's the key line. This person is, and it's leaded by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all this person does, they prosper. What's the poet of Psalm 1 saying? That the person that delights in and finds nourishment in God's word is like this tree that has these deep roots that lead to life and flourishing and fulfillment and wholeness. And Jesus understood Psalms like this when he is saying, man shall not live by bread alone. Man is going to be nourished by God's word and God's word alone. Again, throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he's constantly relying on God's word. Even on, as he's being crucified on the cross, Jesus is quoting from the psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the first thing to understand, Jesus was nourished by the scriptures. Second thing, Jesus understood the scriptures. Again, there's a, so much we could say about understanding the scriptures rightly. Right? We, we could talk about understanding the, the big arc of the storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. We could talk about what it means to understand the background, the original context, how each book plays into the larger narrative flow of the scriptures. But for this particular passage in particular, I want to talk about how Jesus understood the scriptures as they apply to his life. Meaning Jesus didn't just want it to say take the scriptures or take a verse out of context and just make it say whatever he wanted to say. He understood what the scripture was meaning to say 
not just knowing kind of the words themselves. Notice what happens in verse 6. The tempter comes again to Jesus and says, If, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And notice the tempter has that same line, for it is written. Right? The tempter knows the scripture. And what he's going to do is he's going to quote Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, what the tempter is doing, he's twisting scripture, making it say something that it actually doesn't mean. Because Jesus in verse 7 says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus is quoting, again, from the book of Deuteronomy. And what Jesus is showing us about the scriptures, what he's saying about the scriptures, is that on one hand, yes, the tempter knows a verse The tempter knows the scriptures, but the tempter has taken it out of context. He doesn't rightly understand what Psalm 91 is talking about. Sure, Psalm 91 is this beautiful poem of God's protection and God's watch over his people. But that doesn't mean you can just kind of show off and do whatever you want and just kind of, you know, test God in that sense. Deuteronomy, the Lord your God, to the test. You know, later on in the gospel story, There's this interaction that Jesus has, one of many interactions, with the religious leaders that Jesus has. And the religious leaders, they come to Jesus, this is in Mark chapter 12, and they come to Jesus and they kind of want to set up this trap for Jesus. And they want to talk about, they want to question Jesus about the afterlife. And there's this really weird hypothetical scenario, like if this man has all these, you know, if he dies and then this brother, he, he has to marry this wife. And it's kind of this weird misreading of the scriptures we don't have time to get into. Jesus' response to kind of the religious leader's view of the scriptures and their twisting of scripture is this kind of iconic line in Mark 12. Jesus says this, are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Are you not in error? And he's saying this to the the people of the day who supposedly know the Bible. Are you not in error? See, for Jesus, there's a category of being in error because one does not know the scriptures. Maybe they haven't read the scriptures. Maybe they haven't, maybe they have read the scriptures but don't rightly understand the scriptures. Or maybe they've read the scriptures but don't believe that there's any power. Twelve know their Bible. The scriptures. See, the tempter in Matthew 4 knows the Bible. The religious leaders in Mark 12 know their Bible. But for Jesus, a properly understanding the scriptures is crucial. What it actually says and what it actually means go hand in hand. And as we as a community, as, as followers of Jesus, read the scriptures in community, this is why it's so important that we rightly understand what the scriptures say and how it rightly applies to our lives. You know, maybe kind of a quick example with this. You know, you can take verses in the scriptures that talk about like God's grace and God's forgiveness. And if you just kind of isolate those out of context, you might come away thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter how I behave because God's so gracious. It doesn't really matter what I do with my life. It doesn't really matter what works I do. Or on the flip side, you could take verses about the spiritual disciplines, things that we're talking about a lot of in this series, or things about practicing the way of Jesus and the habits and rhythms, and think, oh, this is all about doing, doing, doing. And it's all about behavior on this end. But it's not until you rightly see both of those passages or those types of passages in context together 
do you see that grace is not opposed to following Jesus in the habits and practices in the spiritual disciplines, but that they go together. That these are, in the language of our series title, unforced rhythms of Jesus, and that they go hand in hand. So number one, Jesus was nourished by the scriptures. Number two, Jesus understood the scriptures. And lastly, number three, Jesus obeyed the scriptures. Look what it says in verse eight. Again, the devil took him, being Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you would fall down and worship me. But again, here's Jesus. He's going to quote again from Deuteronomy, verse 10. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, the tempter thinks he has all the authority, right? He thinks he's the one that can just give Jesus all this stuff. But Jesus says, no, no. God is the one who has all the authority. And him and him alone is who I worship. And for us as followers of Jesus, we come under the authority of of Scripture because we are followers of Jesus. Just like Jesus himself throughout this passage is coming under the authority of Scripture, we too, as his followers, are to do the same. But here's the thing. In our cultural moment, seeing the scriptures in the Bible as authoritative, man, that really rubs against our cultural moment. That really pushes against sort of the individualism that we so cherish and frankly go idolatrous of. You know, kind of quick backstory here. 500 years ago, you know, it was commonplace and accepted that, yeah, the Bible is authority, is the authority. It's authoritative. No problem whatsoever. But then fast forward to the Enlightenment, 18th, 19th century, the Bible kind of has a diminishing role in what it means to be authoritative. And now all of a sudden it's education and science and that expert, that has the authority. And again, nothing wrong with that. I think the Bible and science, the Bible and intellect, they go hand in hand. But now fast forward to our cultural moment. It's not even so much that it's the PhD or the science that has authority. And it's definitely not the scriptures that have authority. But now what has authority in our modern day is what sociologists call the, quote, autonomous self. Meaning, you do you is our authority. What feels right, like in the language of the book of Judges, everyone doing right in their own eyes. That has become the supreme authority. You know, a guy by the name Tom Nichols wrote this fascinating book a couple years ago called The Death of Expertise. And in it, he kind of chronicles all the different fields of like education and science and business and religion and points out that in our cultural moment, we don't even kind of come and respect authority in any of these kind of given fields like PhDs and scholars and people that have studied and trained in these fields, but rather because we have, you know, a supercomputer in our back pocket, decisions and disregard Surrey, that we just think that we're the experts ourselves and that we can just make our own decisions and disregard kind of what's out there in the world. The point being is that we live in a moment where authority just rubs against our individualism. That to come under the authority of scripture kind of speaks to the idolatry of self, the desire to want to make our own choices what we think is best. Thomas Jefferson, he's the third president of our country. He's kind of famous for taking the scriptures, his copy of the Bible, and cutting out all the pieces and, and sections that he didn't like, right? It's called the Jefferson Bible. There's, a, I think, a picture of it behind me. And what I appreciate about Thomas Jefferson is at least he was honest. 
right? At least he was honest. See, I think if we are being honest, there's a part of us that wants to kind of sidestep the fact that the scriptures, as followers of Jesus, that we come under the authority of the scriptures. And that the scriptures won't always align with what we feel is right in our own eyes. You know, we like postmodern people just like to take the portions that resonate with us and then dismiss the parts that don't, you know, kind of line up to our vision of the good life. You know, kind of a silly example, but say you get pulled over by a party, but that's just five and a 35. I mean, you can't go to the officer and say, hey, officer, I'm sorry, but that's just your interpretation of that sign. <laughs> and you know, like postmodern culture, limit, the Hebrew root behind limit, it really means like borders with expansion. And you know, you have your interpretation, I have my interpretation, you know, He's going to hand you a $300 ticket and say, have a nice day, right? But we joke, but there's a part of us that wants to do that with the scriptures at times. I mean, sure, there's things in scriptures we clearly don't obey, right? You can have bacon for lunch. You can wear clothing made out of two claws. That's all reference to Leviticus. But let's just focus for a second on the teachings of Jesus themselves, right? Whether it's Jesus' teaching on something like the scriptures or Jesus' teaching on judgment, or Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies, or care for the poor, or his ethic on sexuality, whatever the case might be. There's portions of the teachings of Jesus that, if we're honest, kind of push against some of our individualism and our own sense of self and our own sense of what we think is right in our own eyes. And as followers of Jesus, it's in those moments it's in those moments where we kind of have this choice, where we do have this choice. Who do we worship? Do we worship the autonomous self or do we trust self and do what, we, do what is right in our own eyes? Or do we trust, trust that Jesus' vision of what it means to be human as revealed to us in the Gospels and the writings of the New Testament is actually the best way to live, is actually for our good. That when Jesus says in John 10, I've come to give life and life abundant, that he actually meant it. And that he is faithful to that. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we have these moments where, yes, we love the Bible, we love the scriptures. But if we're honest, there are these other moments where we have to wrestle with the text and say, will I align my life with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and the whole canon of scripture and say, yes, Jesus, I trust you. Yes, Jesus, your way is actually good news. Your way is best. Tim Keller puts it well. He says this, if your God or the scriptures never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. It's a great little line. So for us, as followers of Jesus, as an act in faith of trust, we come under the authority of Jesus by coming under the authority of Scripture. And so to maybe kind of recap here as we kind of get into the everyday life stuff. Three, Jesus, under why we should read the Scriptures. Jesus was nourished by the Scriptures. Jesus understood the Scriptures. Jesus obeyed the Scriptures. And one more thing from Andrew Wilson. He says this, Jesus, it seems... Love the word of God with his heart. He was satisfied by it. He, his mind, he understood it. And his will, he obeyed it. If that is true of Jesus, 
I want that to be true of me. And so for us, as we think about our sort of everyday life with God, what does this kind of look like? Well, practically, we could just say, go home and read your Bible, but let's kind of flesh this out a little bit. Maybe start with, you know, those with parents with kids, able kids. We've been talking about this kind of section each week. But maybe as, as a practice, as something to maybe implement in your own family's routine, maybe grab a children's Bible that's a good, solid children's Bible that's faithful to the scriptures. And if you have questions on kind of which ones those might be, uh, Trish Crawl, she's our children's director. She has a whole list of those. She'd be happy to help you with that. And then if you are on the able parents or the able kids email, they'll have links to those this afternoon as that goes out. But just kind of real simply, what we do is our, with our family is just simply every night before our kids go to bed, we have this Bible called the Laugh and Learn Story Bible. It's fairly recent, and it's phenomenal. Practical questions that we have 10 minutes at most going through a story of Scripture. And then there's practical questions that we can ask our kids that are age-appropriate. Our daughter's almost or four and a half. Kaysen's two and a half. Kaysen just jumps around the whole time. But it works well with Sienna. But it's just a, a simple way for us as a family to have the, the rhythm of Scripture in our life. And honestly, this Laugh and Learn Bible... I think it provides a ton of biblical and theological insight into a lot of passages. So, like, you'll get a lot out of it, parents, as you kind of work through this, hopefully, with your kids. But maybe for you, as you're following Jesus in your everyday life, another thing is, you know, on your own, maybe without your kids or if you don't have kids, another thing to think about is maybe start small. Maybe you want this. You're here today. You love Jesus. You love the scriptures. But it's just kind of really hard for you to kind of get on board and really make the time. One thing I would say is start small. Like if you're training for a marathon, you don't just go out day one and start running, you know, 15, 20 miles on day one, right? So maybe set a timer and take a psalm. Psalm 1. I quoted or read it just a few moments ago. And take a timer for two minutes and read through that psalm, or read through Psalm 119, just for a couple minutes each day. And just allow and ask, God, and ask through your word. What do you have to say to me today? What do you want to say to me through your word? And there's, there's, there's a moment here, you know, I was talking about earlier about when I, I was asking some of my friends, what makes it hard to read the scriptures? There's a moment where it becomes this, this battle and this moment of trust that God, will you really meet me in the scriptures? Maybe another way to say it, is it really gonna be worth it? I have so many other things to do in my day. Is this moment that I set aside in the scriptures really going to be worth it? And I think of this line from the book of Isaiah and it's just kind of coming to mind right now so I don't have the exact reference, but in Isaiah in the, in the 50s or so, Isaiah writes this line, God's word will not return void. And I think there's a moment of trust there. That as we open up our scriptures, as we open up our copy of the scriptures, that God's word will not return void. That he is faithful to meet us there. You know, and maybe for some other, some, some, some other of us that two minutes, you might be like, well, give me a little bit more. I want a little bit more of a challenge. And for you, I would say, if you haven't yet read through like large portions of scripture, maybe commit to over the next 90 days trying to read through the entirety of the New Testament. I'd love to do that with some of you. 
You know, if you want a, a, a plan for that, I have some in my office. I can hand those to you. And I would love to do that with some of you in community together. Whether it's through text or meeting up, reading through the entirety of the New Testament in 90 days. It's, it's actually just three chapters a day. It's fairly doable. 15, 20 minutes each day. And again, it's a, it's a, a moment of trust. It's a moment of worship. God, will you meet me in those moments? And the answer is yes. But each morning or evening, whatever your rhythm might be, there's this choice that you and I have to make. Where is it, like for me, do I pick up my phone and look at Instagram? Or do I open up my copy of the scriptures? Believing that this is what nourishes. This is what reveals the good character of God. This is, what, this is how God speaks to me. And that God's word will not return void. And so for all of us in this room today, wherever you find yourself, whether you love the scriptures or have, you know, so many questions about it, I'm just so glad you're here. I'm so glad for the opportunity that we have to gather and, and talk about this. But for the week ahead, and as we transition into worship and we're going to transition into communion, maybe you kind of have a moment, what prevents mission and ask yourself, and that honest question, what prevents me from opening up the scriptures? What are some of the roadblocks from really engaging God in the scriptures? And maybe it is an, an issue of trust, an issue of, God, are you really going to be faithful and really meet me there? And maybe it's coming to him saying, yes, God, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. And trusting and believing that, God, you are as good as your word says you are. And I want more of that in my life. And so I want to invite the worship team to come up. And if you're serving communion, you can come up as well. You know, as we think about the scriptures and we think about who Jesus is, we recognize and remember that communion is an opportunity to remember that the word of God himself became flesh and dwelt among us in the language of, of John chapter 1. And that communion is this beautiful opportunity to remember the sacrifice and the life of Jesus. And that however you come into this room, whether it's with hopes and dreams and excitement or a sense of fear and uncertainty... That like you're just so doing that. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're just so distant from God. But God is present. He is near and he wants to be near. And so as we sing this next song, we'll have the band play. And I invite you to come down the center aisle and we'll have folks up here. And as you come, they're, take the bread and dip it in the cup here. And they'll say as, we do, as you do that, the body of Jesus broken for you and the blood of Jesus shed for you. You know, because on that night before Jesus would be crucified, Jesus did that exact same thing. And he was with his disciples and he said that this bread represented his body broken for you and for me. And then he took that bread and he dipped it in this cup, the cup of wine, and said this represents my blood poured out so that sins may be forgiven. You know, we all walk into this room a mixed bag. 
We all walk into this room with brokenness. But Jesus invites us to turn from our old habits and patterns and ways and to turn to him because he is gracious and he is good. So as we spend this moment of reflection and this time of worship, may we remember the good sacrifice of our good Savior. Stand and pray together. Jesus, we are so grateful for what you've done for us. We ask, God, that as we worship, as we take the bread and the cup, Lord, you would remind us of your goodness once again. And that you'd help us to see you for who you truly are. You'd help us to recognize and understand that you are for us and not against us, that you love us with a relentless love. And whether we feel like we have it all together or we don't, the honesty is that we don't have it all together and that we need you. So help us to recognize our need for you this morning. We love you and we pray and ask these things in your name. Amen.